All right. Thank you. Good morning, everybody. Very happy to be here, be able to come and share out of uh, James chapter 3. My name is Job Hammond. I'm the director for youth ministries here at EBF. Uh, in addition to that, I also work for a, a, a missions organization that takes high school students on summer-long mission trips. Uh, so I get to work with students, I get to work in ministry full-time, and, uh, and I really love it. Um, so, uh, so I get to preach this morning out of James chapter 3, verses 1 through 12. Let me open us up with the word of prayer first, and then I'm going to read the passage for us. Father, I pray uh, tonight, this morning that... Uh, that you would call to mind as we engage and as we dig into James chapter 3, the, uh, those moments, those, uh, those bad habits, those reactions, those things that come out of us, Lord, that we can't really account for. Um, there's so many things that we say and do in a day uh, that we don't think through very well, Lord. And, uh, um, and Lord, I just pray that you impress upon us the incredible ramifications those have. Um, and not that we would be discouraged in that, Lord, but, but we would be encouraged to, to seek after you, to follow your lead on this, and to learn what it looks like to represent you well in the church, Lord. And here's a practical way to do that, to pray that you would make it real to us, that you would dig into our lives and expose things that we hadn't been paying attention to, so that we could begin to work on those things. We thank you and we pray this in your name. Amen. James chapter 3, starting at verse 1 through verse 12. Now many of you should become teachers, my brothers, for you know that we who teach will be judged with greater strictness. For we all stumble in many ways, and if anyone does not stumble in what he says, he is a perfect man, able also to bridle his whole body. If we put bits in the mouths of horses so that they obey us, we guide their whole bodies as well. Look at the ships also. Though they are so large and are driven by strong winds, they are guided by a very small rudder wherever the will of the pilot directs. So also the tongue is a small rudder, a small member, yet it boasts of great things. How great a forest is set ablaze by such a small fire. And the tongue is a fire, a world of unrighteousness. The tongue is set among our members, staining the whole body, setting it on fire the entire course of life, and set on fire by hell. For every kind of beast and bird, of reptile and sea creature can be tamed and has been tamed by mankind. But no human being can tame the tongue. It is a restless evil, full of deadly poison. With it we bless our Lord and Father. With it we curse people who are made in the likeness of God. From the same mouth come blessing and cursing, my brothers. These things ought not to be so. Does a spring pour forth from the same opening, both fresh and salt water? Can a fig tree, my brothers, bear olives, or a grapevine produce figs? Neither can a salt pond yield fresh water. They say if, uh, if you want to find out just how absolutely, incredibly selfish of a person you can be, you should get married. Because what happens inevitably that you, have, you find yourself in a relationship with this person that's very up close and personal with you all the time, and uh, before long, you can no longer hide the real you, and those things just start coming out, and that person is a witness to them, and now you're aware of these things that you didn't even want to be aware of before. And uh, it worked out this way for me. I, I'd have to agree with the statement. In our first year of marriage with my wife, Bethany, uh, we fought a lot. We fought quite often. We were so stubborn. I'm not anymore, thankfully, but back then we were so stubborn. And, uh, and so, and the fights would always pretty much happen the same way. 
It started out, somebody says something mildly offensive, and then the other person takes offensive to that and gets frustrated. And then each other gets entrenched in their own opinion about that little thing, and then it escalates. And so they keep reacting and, and one-upping each other in the reaction, and it builds and it builds, and all of a sudden, you're just fuming angry over this ridiculous little thing. And, uh, and you're, just, you're, you're out of control in this fight, and you're arguing, and you just want to defend your side. And, uh, and so this is what would happen for us, and here's how I would deal with it in the moment. I would walk into the living room, I would sit down on the couch, and I would turn on the TV and start watching anything. It didn't matter. It was as if to say, I'm over this, man. I don't care about this fight anymore. You go on, be mad. I'm just going to watch TV now. I'm done with this. And that, of course, I made Bethany even matter. It was she was so frustrated with me. She would just stand in front of the couch, furious, just seething, staring at me, um, and wanting to keep going and wanting me to keep digging into this fight with her because we just dealt with that stuff in different ways, which I should just express my gratitude to Pastor John and Layla Bechtel for the many counseling sessions that we had together and their uh, patience in teaching us how to stay married to each other. Um, it was pretty crucial, I think, for us. Because these are just the things that came natural to me. This is just what came out in the moment. I just did this. I didn't know why, but I felt so justified in it. I felt right for whatever reason. And, uh, and it just, this was just what, how I reacted to that situation. Um, and I think if we're being honest, our lives are full of these things, these reactions, these things that we do, these habits, these defense mechanisms, these things that come out of us that we can't really account for. But they just happen and they come naturally to us and we feel so justified for it in the moment until later on when we get some clarity and we realize how foolish we were being. And I think that's why James chapter 3, this passage, is so real to us. Because it convicts us of these things. It calls us out that all these things, these bad habits, these things that come out of us and things that we think are such a small deal, it tells us something quite different, that these actually have huge ramifications and we have to deal with this stuff. This stuff that we're saying, this stuff that's coming out of us, we have to deal with that because we're responsible for it and we're responsible for the destruction it causes. So I want to talk through, um, I'm going to offer three truths about our speech that I think is important and as explained and described by James. Uh, but let me start with verse 1 here, uh, because to be honest with you, this is really the verse that I spent the most time studying of all the verses in this passage, mostly because it made me feel very uncomfortable. Because it kind of sounds like the guy who's up there on stage teaching the Bible is the one who has to be the most perfect of all the Christians in the room. And, uh, and if he's not, if he sins, then as a teacher, he's going to be judged more for those sins than all the other people would be judged for those same sins. Which if that's true, eh, I'm not into that. I don't want to do that. I'm done teaching. I don't want to be a preacher. I don't want any of that. Uh, I can't hold up to that. But fortunately, I don't think that's actually what this is saying or what is the case here. And here's what I found. Do you remember last week when Pastor Jason preached? He had a bunch of people standing, sitting up on stage, looking kind of uncomfortable about it. But it was to illustrate the, the fact that, you know, there is the issue and in, in, uh, James is addressing is showing partiality and favoritism in the church. 
because this is an issue that plagued the church. Uh, it was a young, so immature, and still trying to just figure out how to do church. What even is that? Um, and they found themselves in the early church sort of wanting to treat it like a hierarchy. The teachers in the room being the most important people, and then people like widows and orphans were the least important because they could contribute the least. So if you wanted to be important, if you wanted to feel famous, to feel significant in the church, then just be a teacher. Call yourself a teacher, and, and that's, that's the best thing. That's going to bring you the most adoration of anything you can do. And James' message to them, by saying, some of you need to not be teachers, is to say, you're doing a terrible job at this. You're calling a teacher, but you're a hypocrite. You're, this is all about you. Your life is about, and your, your so-called ministry is about calling attention to yourself and trying to make yourself feel really good. You just really want to be like, you don't want to represent Christ to people. You don't want to disciple people. You don't want to train them up in the word and train them up into, to be followers of Christ. You just want people to like you. That's why you're calling yourself a teacher. And you need to stop because you're awful at it. But the fact remains that it is the nature of being a follower of Christ. It is the nature of being a Christian and being a part of the church that we represent Christ to one another and to this world. We are called to be disciple makers. And therefore, we have this function of being a teacher in this world in as far as we are influencers on one another um, in a myriad of ways. So the passage, the verses that follow, James wants it not to just be meant for the teachers, but for absolutely every one of us. This applies to all of us. And so the three truths I want you to understand about our speech. The first one is this. Our speech reflects our faith. Our speech reflects our faith. And we get this mostly from the context. Now, if you notice, we're, we're teaching through James, but we're actually out of order. Uh, the passage before this talks about faith without works is dead. That's James 2, 14 through 26. And, uh, and we're gonna, Pastor Jason is going to teach on that next week. Uh, mostly because he wanted to be the one that that teaches that one, which is perfect. Um, but, uh, but we've switched the order of things. And the only thing that really affects is we need to understand that this, that's an important context for this passage. That when James is talking about controlling our tongue and, our, and controlling our speech, he's doing it because he just said something important about our faith. That our faith without works is dead. That faith and works come together. And if you want to express your faith, start here. Start with your tongue. It's the very next thing he talks about. So we, we need to understand that our speech is a reflection. It reflects our faith. If our faith is sincere, our speech should demonstrate our desire to see sinners redeemed and not destroyed. It should contain grace and truth to no end. Our speech should not be accidental or haphazard. Even our knee-jerk reactions have to be grace-filled and true because what's coming out of us comes from a place of faith. It comes from within us. We have to work at our faith. It's not a passive thing. We don't get to just hope that we say the right things all the time. We have to work at representing Christ and replacing the destructive, the negative things we do with the constructive, the things that glorify God. We have to practice that. We have to work at it. And it's an act of faith every single day. Our speech is a reflection. It reflects our faith. 
The second point is, our speech is much too powerful to be silenced. Our speech is too powerful to be silenced. We get this from verses 6 through 8. It says, it, it gives this beautiful um, illustration, this imagery of the power that happens, the, the force of nature that our tongue is. And it all culminates with this huge statement, this loaded statement that says, no human being can tame the tongue. No man can tame the tongue. We would like to, under, we would like to think that we have control over the things, the effects of our words, but oftentimes we grossly Im- underestimate the impact of our words and the, the effect that they have on the world around us. We're shocked when we say something and our words didn't do exactly what we wanted them to do. I actually, so I get, to, I get to do a fair amount of teaching. I work in youth ministry, so I get to do some public speaking. I get to preach every once in a while. I even get to travel overseas and do some, some teaching and preaching overseas too which is awesome. I love it. I'm trying really hard to get better at it. I'm trying to get better at being a public speaker. And I've learned that there's a few words that I just absolutely cannot say. Because if I say them wrong at all, I screw everything up. I've ruined everything I've tried to accomplish. For example, and I break my own rule in using this example, but, uh, but I think it helps. For example, I can't ever say the word in a public setting in a public teaching, the word peanuts. Or the word tense. I'm trying really hard to enunciate these well. The word ship. Or the word version. And this is not even a complete list. There's a lot others that are more racy. But the fact is, if I say any of those wrong at all, and this is a list that comes out of experience, you know, uh, but if I misspeak those words, that I've just, I've lost my audience. I've ruined my teaching. I can't even really pick up and carry on and move out of that because they're distracted by the vulgarity that they thought just came out of my mouth just because of a little mispronunciation. And I think it's true that on a, obviously a much bigger scale that we have to accept the fact that our words, whether we mispronounce them or whether they're misunderstood or misinterpreted, can have terrible unintended consequences to those who hear them and to the world around us. That God can use our words in ways that we didn't think he would use them to do great things, but our words can also be used by Satan to cause destruction, to bring pain and heartache. And we have to accept full responsibility for everything that comes out of our mouth and to understand and to think through the kind of impact they, they can have before we even say them. We are responsible for the things that come out of our mouths and have to know the impact or think through the impact they can have before we say them. Or it might even happen that we don't get the effect or the response that we were hoping for. We think we were ignored or unnoticed, so we look to other people. We take a step back and we hope somebody else will say the right thing and, uh, and speak for us and be our voice and, and accomplish what we couldn't. Moses would actually be in a good example of this in the Old Testament. But just because you didn't get the results or the effects that you wanted from it, uh, from your words, doesn't mean they don't have a real impact. Sometimes we accomplish amazing things, or God accomplishes amazing things through our words that we are completely unaware of. We don't even know. But the same is true that we can do irreparable damage. Those little things, the little things, the little words matter a lot. 
Our tongues are much too powerful to be silenced by another person. No matter how, how much power they have over you, they can't silence your words. Consider your words and trust and their ability to have an impact, whether for good or for bad. Our speech is much too powerful to be silenced. And then the third truth about our speech. Our speech can bring death or life. Our speech can bring death or life. We get this from verses 9 through 12. And actually, this is just a quote from a buddy of mine. His name is Brian. He leads mission trips too. And I got to sit in on a teaching he was doing about leadership of all things. When he was talking to students about the impact they can have, the influence they can have over others if they lead by example. And he was talking about the things that come out of their mouths. And he made this statement and it just gripped me. It just caught me. It's something I heard. is something very old, but in a whole new way. It said, your words can bring death to people or they can bring life to people. So simple. But I think it's true because when we represent Christ, Christ is life. Christ is life. So when we represent Christ, we represent life in the world. But when we don't represent Christ, anything that is without Christ is death. If it's not Christ, it's death. So we can represent life or we can represent death with our words. I believe in that. And so here's what I want to do pretty much for the rest of my time up here. I want to talk through just a whole bunch of really practical examples. Just real life experiences where we can bring A, death to the world with our words, or where we can bring life to the world with our words. Most of this list, of course, is compiled from my own life, unfortunately. Um, But I hope it starts the the thought process, because I think this list could go on forever of things that we can do, things that we can say both for good and for bad. So here we go. You bring death when you speak negatively about people. Especially about people who are close to you, people who are important to you. Especially when you do it in public. I see this a lot, you know, in in a variety of relationships. Because it's so easy to do. You sort of, you want people to understand what you have to deal with, the things you have to put up with this person. So you see a lot, a lot lot of times in marriages where husband and wife will complain about each other to their friends or to whomever. And uh, and so they'll just be really vocal and they'll complain and it seems really insignificant. It just seems um, not that hurtful. But it's speaking vocally about negative things, bad habits, or something irresponsible that person does, or something they do all the time. It drives me crazy. I don't like it. Um, And it can cause a lot of destructive and a a lot of disunity in a marriage. But I think I made a commitment to each other a long time ago that we we won't do that. We're not going to complain. We're not going to complain about each other to our friends. We're not going to do it. We're going to leave that part out of our conversations, which takes some discipline. It actually takes some work sometimes because you just sometimes you just have you know you're having a bad week with each other or or you're on a topic and it seems so relevant to say what they did this week that drove you crazy and did the exact same thing. But we find that when we leave that out of the conversations, both it allows for a lot of unity in our marriage that would probably not be there otherwise. Um, it allows for the reputation of each other to stay intact, that publicly we're holding each other up, we're uplifting one another, and, uh, and we never miss it. We never miss complaining about each other to our friends. We never regret not saying that thing that was really frustrated or we were frustrated about. I see this in other relationships too, employees and bosses. Uh, I see it because I work in youth ministry, parents and, and their kids, um, where 
parents, I'll find like they'll say things that are, they, they think are really benign. I don't think it comes from a place of malice. I don't think they dislike their kids. But you'll see parents talking to other parents, especially about the, the things that their kids do or how they've messed up or mistakes they're made or what they're working through. And, uh, and they're all too public about it. And I, what, I, what I've noticed is that so much, especially for teenagers, so much of the, how they perceive themselves is influenced by how their parents talk about them publicly. And so if the parent's holding up the kids, uh, that influences how the kids see themselves in their relationship to their parents. It's huge. I don't mean to rag on parents about that. I think it's really easy to do. And like I said, I don't think it comes from a, a negative place or a place of, of hatred. I think they love their kids. And I think they sometimes just want help or want people to understand and see where, what's going on in their lives. And people want to feel heard and understood. But there's better places to do that than just publicly complaining about people. So we bring death when we speak negatively about people in public. We bring death when we use social media to complain or point the finger at people. It's becoming daily now. There's somebody new being crucified on Facebook or the news for something they did, and it blew up, and it went viral, and uh, now everybody knows about this really terrible thing they did. This It was bigoted, or it was... Uh, you know, ignorant or simple or wrong and everybody doesn't like them for it. And, uh, and this stuff blows up and it's just like, and we kind of just add to it. It just becomes this fury of people who are so angry at this one person for this terrible thing they did. But we have to recognize that that is not how God wants us to deal with sin. We don't get to gang up on each other and publicly crucify people, human beings who are made in God's likeness over their sin. We don't get to do that. That's not how sin is dealt with. We can still stand up for what's right. We can still stand against sin. But we can't use human beings and we can't crucify people. We can't rally others around them publicly and ruin them in our attempt to try to defend righteousness and hate on sin. That's not how it works. And if we don't have a personal relationship where we can speak in the life of a person, we don't get a voice in the conversation about how terrible they are for their sin. We don't get to be a part of that. And we have to be really disciplined and not contribute to those things. To not hit like or retreat or throw in our opinion. And it's really hard to do because sometimes we get so fired up by their actions. Because they might, be, they might be terrible. They might have done something really wrong and incredibly offensive. But we don't get to just publicly attack them for it. I think it's becoming so common. It's so normal. And I find myself getting sucked into it every time, too, where I read it and I'm so mad at them. And I just want to throw it. I see other people making comments. I'm like, no, you don't get it. I'm right. Here we go. And, uh, and, I, and I want to engage it. But, uh, but we have to be disciplined to know the difference of how sin is dealt with and how it isn't. Public shaming is wrong. And we have to take our voices out of those conversations. All right. You bring death when you are insincere about little things. When you're insincere and you, you do things like you promise to pray for somebody and you don't, but it seems like a really nice thing to say at the moment. Or, um, or you tell somebody something along the lines of, hey, if you just need anything, if you need anything, you let me know. All right, I'll be there for you. And then they call you, but it's a really busy time at work and They've taken you up on it, and you're kind of hacked off that they did. You don't, you have to get out of it. Um, I think, like, those insincerities are destructive. They're bad habits to get into that if we can't 
embrace and, and follow through with joy the things that we promise, we need not to say them. We bring death when we give super spiritual advice that sounds so insightful, but it doesn't actually do anything to build up the person or help them out. Sometimes we'll be hearing somebody talk about something, and we just want to be the person that says the right thing, that gives the exact right advice in the moment, and, uh, and, then, and we're the hero. We've come to the rescue. We've said it, and now, uh, you know, big pats on my back. Um, and so we say things, and sometimes we'll resort to just cliches if we can't think of anything else. So we'll say, don't worry, you know, God doesn't close a door without opening a window. Or, don't worry, God is preparing your future spouse for you. This just isn't the one. Or, um, you know, so many things like this, which, you know, they might actually be, there might be some truth to them. There could be an argument to be made that there's truth to this. But oftentimes, it's because we don't have, we don't really understand the issue. We're not really well equipped to speak to it. And, uh, and we're, we're trying to give advice, and really we should just be supportive and prayerful and encouraging in a different way. Um, because we're, what we're doing is we're trying to make it about us, where we're the right person to say the right thing, and we're really impressive when we do that, and when we sound really insightful. Um, but it's not, it doesn't actually build people up. It doesn't edify people. In fact, it can be quite destructive when we are so quick to try to give insight that we have no business giving to this person, all right? When we try to sound so spiritual. All right, we bring death when we reject correction because we don't want it. Because we want to deal with this on our own. We want to handle it in our own way. Or we don't want that person being the one to confront us on this issue. We don't want to be called out for things. It's amazingly uncomfortable to be told you're guilty of sin by somebody. And, uh, and it's really easy and really natural to want to dismiss that or to reject it. And it can come out mildly. It can come out saying things like, you just misunderstood me. I was totally joking. Like, you, didn't, you just didn't understand what I was trying to say. Or I didn't mean it that way at all. Um, I think when we're dismissive like that, when we try to blow it off, when we try to minimize our actions or our sins, we reject correction. We're being liars. We're being hypocrites about our own sin. And we bring death with it. We bring death when we're artificially vulnerable. When we, uh, when we are you know, expressing prayer requests or we're having a conversation where we're, we're trying to show that we're, you know, we're being real and authentic and we say some things that sound really real and authentic, but there's so much more that we're not saying, that we're keeping hidden on purpose, that we're really just trying to create this illusion that we're a real authentic Christian, but we're holding so much back that when we pretend to be authentic, when we pretend to be real, and yet we're not, we fall short of that. Um, I think it's an amazingly thing to, easy thing to do, and it's a lie that we perpetrate. We're in death when we keep secrets about people that you know would crush them if they knew that. When we collect information on people that is not our business, but it gives us power and it makes us feel strong, it makes us feel uh, important when we know things, when we're in the loop on stuff that we shouldn't be involved with. It's just another form of gossip, and it's something that is destructive to people's reputation, to people's understanding of themselves, and it would be terrifying for them if they knew that you knew about that stuff. That if we can't have truth and openness in our relationships with one another, uh, then we have broken relationships. We bring death when we identify people by their perceived weakness. 
Let me explain this. I get to do some ministry overseas. I love doing that. I love traveling over. I like working with people with, who are struggling in life, and I love teaching other students how to do it too. Um, and I find it it's really easy for us that when we want to minister to somebody, we sort of categorize them in a certain way. So, like, if you want to minister to a widow, you treat them like a widow. Or you want to minister to a poor person, you treat them like a poor person. Or sometimes, like, we get the privilege of, of serving at a, a leper colony in Nepal each summer. And, uh, and what I find is really easy to just, like, treat them as lepers. But I think that what God wants us to do is when we meet people in their affliction, is to treat them like people. To treat widows like people. To treat orphans like people, like human beings. To treat lepers like they're real people, as much as you and I. And so when we are ministering to people, let's be careful that we are not ministering to them out of their perceived weakness, that we're ministering to them to be people, to be the people that were made in God's likeness. It's an important distinction. It's really easy to, to miss, to pass over that. Um, and it, what it does is it, it creates this really negative relationship with them where you're keeping them where they're at because you're identifying them this way, and they can't get away from that with you. They can't just be a person with you. They have to be their affliction in order to have your attention and your love. And it can't be that way. We treat people like people, like they're made by God in his image and deserve our respect and admiration always. And we we bring death when we use scripture and spiritual truths for our own agenda, when we're trying to have it our way, when we're trying to get our own um, agenda passed, when we're trying to make things go the way we want them to, and we use scripture, we use things that we, a quote that we heard in a great book, just to make it, make it go our way. But really, we're, we're backwards. We have to surrender to what scripture says, and we have to understand that sometimes we have to change our mind and our opinion on things because we're wrong. Because we understood this in the wrong way, and we have to let go of something we're hanging on to because the Bible's saying, you're wrong. This is sin. And we bring death when we try to use Scripture for our own agenda. I should note that if this is, all this list, and like I said, this, I'm done with the death thing because it just gets more and more depressing as we go on. Um, but if you're just getting really frustrated at the people around you who are so guilty of this, you're misunderstanding. They're all frustrated because you're doing the same things they are. That this is about you. This is about us understanding what's going on and what's coming out of us. And so we can bring life too. We bring life. We can bring life. We can represent Christ to people where we can represent Christ in this world. And here are some things that you can bring life when you do these things. The first one is speak spiritual truth to people even though they're really hard to hear. Speak spiritual truths to people even though they're really difficult to hear. I would say this especially in your friendships. Because you don't want to lose those friendships, sometimes you snow over things. You kind of move past things that they say and do that you know are sinful. And, that, uh, and they might be oblivious to it, but you don't want to upset them. You don't want to risk the relationship, so you just avoid the topic. Uh, but they need to hear that from you. They need, to, they need people in their life who will say things that they don't want to hear because they're true. Because it's what Scripture says, it's who God calls us to be. And so being a person who's brave enough to risk a relationship so that they can, you can tell somebody something out of, purely out of love and not because you're just super annoyed by their sin, but because you want them to have a chance to have victory from it. It's called admonishment. So important to Christian living. And so we have to admonish one another. We have to represent Christ by telling each other the truth regardless of how difficult it is to hear. 
And it can never be, oh, you're sinning. You know, it's super annoying. Would you please stop that? It's, it's awful. I hate it. It has to be, I want you to have a chance to get past this. I don't want to be this to be something that ruins your life just because nobody would tell you about it, just because you didn't even realize you were doing it. I want you to have a chance to have victory over this sin. So I'm bringing it up because I love you that much. That's what admonishment looks like. <clears throat> you bring life when you blossom, people. This is a youth ministry term, blossoming. And the idea is that you take something that you observe in them, something really small, it's something they've done, and, uh, and, but it's a good thing. It's a good you know, attribute or whatever. And then you, you speak to that, and you encourage them to do that more, and you bring out and you, you know, suggest possibilities for them, and you, you give them an opportunity and give them insight that this is something that can be really great. An example might be, you're a really hard worker. I saw you, you have such a great work ethic. You know, I think that, I, I just hope you keep doing that. I think there's going to be a lot of thankless years for you, a lot of things that you do that you don't get the gratitude you deserve, but that you serve people so well, and you are doing such a good job of showing Christ's love to people by working hard for them and serving them in thankless ways. Please keep doing that. We need people like you. We're, the world is better because of people like you. Just do that as much as you can, and know how appreciative I am, even when you're not getting thanked. Like, that's blossoming. That stuff, people remember. When you share words with someone like that, they don't forget it. They take that with them, and it becomes a part of who they are, and it, it exposes opportunities for them. Another example might be, you're so creative. Like, you're really a really gifted artist. And you know what? I think the church benefits so much from people like you, who have a fresh perspective, who will look at things from a different angle, who will present Christ and present truths in a way that other people can understand in a fresh way. Would you just do that all the time? Just keep doing, keep honing that crap because you're amazing at it. And I want everybody to see what you're capable of and to see how much glory you can bring Christ to this. You're gifted. Just keep doing that more and more, please. Those are powerful words. It's a powerful way to speak into somebody's life. And I'm so convinced that there's people in your life because there's nobody who can't benefit from that. And there's nobody who is ineligible from words like that. That people have good attributes, good things in their life that they need to hear and they need to be encouraged in. That stuff represents Christ. It represents love to them and they remember it. You bring life to people when you encourage them, when you don't like them. When you treat them well, even though you have some strong differences. It can be that person that maybe there's not even a good reason for it, but you rub each other the wrong way. They drive you crazy. If you can be a person who can see the, the spiritual maturity and the giftedness in them and even call it out, even though you don't like them, it's a powerful way. It's a powerful expression of your own spiritual maturity. And I think what you'll find even is that you'll start focusing on the good things in them and stop focusing on so many negative things about them and you'll find yourself appreciating them more and your opinion of them evolving as you look for good things in them. You bring life when you admit when you're wrong and then you ask for forgiveness. And I just want to make the distinction, I don't think asking for forgiveness is the same thing as saying you're sorry or apologizing. You bring life when you ask thoughtful questions. 
Instead of dropping your face to your phone, which I do incessantly to check my email again, not because I need to, I just did 10 seconds ago, but because I don't want to be sitting in this awkward moment with this silence. Um, But when you can learn to ask questions and engage with people and dig into their lives, it makes them feel cared for, it makes them feel loved, it makes them feel appreciated and seen, and it's a powerful way to represent Christ to people. So learn to ask questions. Learn to dig into people's lives. Learn to be thoughtful in how you approach them. And, uh, and see that the difference it makes in a relationship and how they, they relate to you. It's a powerful tool just to be able to ask good questions. You bring life when you laugh. When you have a sense of humor. It's a huge responsibility to be a follower of Christ. There's a lot of do's and don'ts involved, and we can all get kind of bogged down by the seriousness of, and the ramifications of our misbehaviors. But the fact is, we're a bunch of fools trying to figure it out. And, uh, and there's some opportunities where we just need to understand that life is what it is, and we're going to make mistakes, and we don't have to take ourselves so seriously that we can't just enjoy the moment. That when we laugh, we express joy, we represent Christ to people. We represent enjoyment in the moment, to the ability to see beauty for what it is, to see good things for what they are, and to not take things so seriously that we think we have it all together. That communicates the wrong thing. In fact, we don't have it all together. And if we're willing to admit that, we can laugh about it. We bring life when we laugh. So when I, uh, when I was a little kid, really young. I don't even really remember how old I was. Uh, I was in elementary school. I had a problem where I was saying my S's with my tongue outside my teeth. So every time I would say a, a word with, their, with the letter S, I would sound really silly. And so the teachers identified this problem with me, and they, they brought me into a, one of the other teachers who was like a speech professional. I don't know what he was, but, uh, but he sat me in his office, and he said, all right, Job, here's your problem. You're just... You're just tongue is outside your teeth when your teeth are open, your tongue is out when you're saying the word, the letter S in any word. So here's what we're going to do. We're going to practice some exercises. All I want you to do is keep your tongue inside your mouth. In fact, here's what it is. Your, your teeth are a cage and the, your tongue is a snake. You got to keep the snake in the cage, Job. You got to keep the snake in the cage. So you say, oh, we're going to do some exercises. I want you to say some sentences, but you have to keep your teeth closed closed so that you can keep your snake in the cage. Like he would have me say sentences like this. The slimy snake sneakily slithered through the slippery sloth over and over again, repetitively. And then he, gave me, he told me to keep practicing it. We practiced it there. He sent me out of his office. And, uh, and what I did is I practiced a little more. I figured out how to say my S's correctly, and I moved on. It didn't, it didn't continue on. I was able to get over it, and uh, I learned how to do it the right way. And, uh, and now I, you know, I speak relatively normally. And I think, here's what I think about this passage in James. I think all James is really saying to us is if you can identify the problem in our speech because we have an issue in the way we talk, if you can admit it, if you can see the problem in the way you speak and you're willing to work on it, you're going to see victory. You're going to see the change in your life. You're going to see that you can replace the evil things you say, the wrong things you say, with good things that glorify Christ, that represent him to this world, that change people's lives. You're going to see the difference, and you're going to see other areas of obedience in your life follow suit. And so it's a powerful thing to begin to learn 
to control our speech, and all we have to do is admit that we have the issue with our speech and begin working on it. Begin practicing replacing our destructive words with our constructive words that glorify Christ. Your speech is a reflection of the living, growing faith in you. It is too powerful to be controlled, to be tamed, and you can mean death or you can bring life with it. You bring life by representing Christ on earth with love and truth in everything you say. Let me pray. Father, we thank you uh, for the opportunity, for, the, for those moments in which you point out our sin. Not because it feels good, Lord, because we want to glorify you. We want to follow you better. We want to be better Christians, and we want our faith to grow. And so, Lord, I pray that we would have the courage to take on that task, to take on replacing our negative works with our positive one. Lord, that we would step out in faith and follow you with our tongue. Father, I pray that as we go out this week, Lord, that you would expose those moments, that we would become painfully aware of those, those little moments where we're lazy, where we react the wrong way, Lord, and we're destructive with our language, and that we would learn to quickly replace that language, Father. We, make, we pray that you would give us greater faith, that you would make us whole, that you would make us new, and teach us how to follow you in every aspect with every part of our body. We pray this in your name. Amen.